everyone, how's it going? It is December 6th. We are finally almost out the door of 2020. And the vaccine should be with us, maybe spring or summer, crossing fingers. Hopefully everything works out and we can all get immunized. And maybe some people can get immunized from the sheer stupidity that has just infected half of the country. Oh, speaking of infections, guess who has COVID? You're going to be shocked. Rudy Giuliani. Mm-hmm. If uh, the profuse sweating and sweating down his hair dye didn't convince you that that guy was sick, or just the complete con- loss of control of his butthole during that Philadelphia, I don't know what you want to call it, it's not a hearing, and he was just farting COVID all over the place. If that didn't tell you that guy was sick, then today came out that yes, he got admitted to the hospital, which is something, right? Because he actually had to go to the hospital a lot of people who get it stay home and they recuperate but he had to go to the hospital so I'm hoping he gets better but I'm hoping he learns a lesson but I feel like even getting it does not cure people of their complete stupidity but one can hope okay wishes to the new year Today on my show, I have Christina Wong. She is a performance artist based out of Los Angeles. And um, her one-woman shows are pretty funny. She's a provocateur of sorts. And um, just an all-around outrageous gal. Anywho, sit back, relax, and here's the show. Today, I'm talking to Christina Wong. Hi, Christina. Hi, Andy. How's how's it going? It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Uh, we're recording today on November 29th, so people are going to hear an older version of me by the time you put this out. Um, Just like a week. A week older. A week old. I know. <laughs> I know, but life moves fast in the pandemic. This is true. Um, either <laughs> fast or incredibly slow. <laughs> Yeah, depend on depending on your situation. Um, so today um, is the last day of your show. Can you tell the folks about your show? Yeah, I was. Uh, so the pandemic, I, I haven't seen you in like 15 years. Forever. Right? Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. you created a whole family. I did none of that. <laughs> but I did create a bunch of shows in the time since I last shared a stage with you. Uh-huh. Um, I ran for public office in uh Basically, I had a television reality TV pilot in 2016. This is the way the story goes. I uh, pitched it when Obama was president. Was president. True TV picked it up for a pilot with the idea that they would order it for an entire season if they liked it. By the time we got to shoot it, Trump had taken office and nothing about the context of the world made sense. So um, long story short, they didn't pick it up for the season. I was I, I was completely confused as an artist what my 
you know, as someone who used to do really absurd things, I guess, on stage, like I didn't know how to how to comment on the world the way I used to without being a liability to the left, to my politics, to the things I cared about. Right. Um, there's a wonderful saying, which I use a lot, which is politicians. We used to laugh at. Okay, here's this phrase. We used to laugh at comedians and listen to politicians. Now we laugh at politicians and listen to comedians. And mm. I, I think that uh, that has been what has like the, the, that phrase that this idea that the straight man is no longer like we're the straight man and the politicians are the clowns. Um, it's completely shifted everything for me in the last few years. So I just woke up one morning. Um, I had been trying to write a couple plays about sort of the world and nothing made it just was like this isn't how I'm going to best attack this. So I'm going to run for public office and I'm going to do a show about it called Christina Wong for public office. Like I had no idea what I was doing. Right. Like, and I was like researching how to run for office because I was just really at the point of like, I don't think that me saying on a stage, the world is so crazy is going to be as effective as just intercepting like the situation, which is, is me as an artist in public office. So I ran for, Ran twice, actually. I lost my first election. It was a small party-specific delegate election. And then I ran for neighborhood council in Koreatown. Um, that I won. And so my show, Christina Wong for Public Office, is sort of about this journey from failed reality television star. Hmm, where have we mm. seen that before? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> to, to running for office, to making small changes in my own community. Um, and the state, And the show looks like a looks looks like a, a campaign looks like a rally for public office so i had premiered it live for an audience at the skirball cultural center in february i had a national tour lined up i was supposed to go to hawaii and i had like i was talking to all these theaters uh we all know the how this ends right like everything was mm -hmm. postponed um we're still in a situation where live theater might not open for another year honestly oh my gosh. Uh, which is terrifying um in terms of our field and and already, like most theaters and arts organizations are kind of just, <laughs> just sort of like going along day to day. And so to be in a situation where you can't even show your work is is, is pretty crazy. Um, so I, I adapted the show to my house on Zoom. Uh, so you imagine like, and that's not an easy thing because like, imagine a big raucous rally, right? Uh, like even Trump w couldn't like uh transfer he had to go live he had to go live and infect <laughs> everybody right but i don't want to i don't want people to die at my rallies right i don't want to be a, like oh how, how'd you die oh yeah and um, you're asian and you're chinese yeah. and you're spreading <laughs> oh, yeah, my, covid yeah my sister went to a christina wong show they brought it all home to us right like no i don't want to be that person so right it was crazy. I adapted it for my house. Like I, I don't, I didn't clean out my house or anything. It's like, you see the dirty dishes, you see like <laughs> my couch. This is some realness. And then Center Theater Group um, uh, picked up to film uh, at the Kirk Douglas Theater with no audience uh, for four cameras. So that has been screening for 30 days. Uh, the idea is that I guess it's not screening. I don't own it, so I can't slip anyone the link, um, which is why I've been screaming like a crazy person. Well, I'm always screaming like a crazy person, but I've like been like self-promoting, which is like 95% of this job of an artist is self-promoting, <laughs> but telling people to go watch right. it, go watch it, go watch it. Because it's like, um, I think we're used to things living forever on the internet and then we'll get to it some at some point. But I think their thinking was if we make it go away at a certain point, that people will make the effort to watch it. So uh, I'm getting a lot of messages from people who are like, okay, I'm sorry, it was last minute. I finally watched it. It's great. 
you know? So, mm -hmm. uh, but that's the show. And then I'm um, working on a new show right now that I'm actually also touring from my house. You want to hear about that? I don't know. Yes. We'll yes. <laughs> and my apologies, total Asian feel on my part, on my part, because yes, I'm one of those people who thought that it just goes straight into the cloud and that I would just be it watching it later. No, yeah, I, I don't so. own it. Right. So, mm -hmm. which is crazy because that's my show, but I yeah. don't, it's, it was, it's interesting filming theater. Like it, it, it's not, some people don't get it. Think it's like, oh, you just put it on camera. It's the same experience. It's, no, you have to like go from looking at a big crowd to like looking at specific cameras, turning your head. You go from like, Otherwise, Playing you sound to like an really Gilfoil. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. you like, the best is yet to come. Like, <laughs> you don't do that when you're doing a show at your house. You, like, look <laughs> intimately into the camera and you talk. That's why she looked like a person. crazy person. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so these are the, these kind of adjustments that have to be made when you decide to shoot theater on film and, and and it's it's an interesting hybrid of like a facetime but you have to keep it kind of entertaining and right. and instead of light changes you move the angle of your your camera or you move to a different room of your house right so uh so at the top of this pandemic i don't know if you know this andy but i i sew i sew my set pieces never I saw sewed medical that. equipment i saw it online yes never sewed medical equipment in my life mm -hmm. and saw you know immediately i i deal with this guilt of not being essential quote unquote like having having had all the things like the best education and went to ucla and then saying you know what? i'm gonna be a performance artist and uh <laughs> And I, you know, I sometimes in moments like this of complete crisis, I go, oh, great, can't help anybody. But I sew, right? I sew my set pieces and I saw that there was a shortage of masks and that, mm -hmm. that hospitals were like, please sew us masks. And I was like, okay, I, I didn't become a nurse, but I can save a nurse's life. So I started cutting up t-shirts, scraps of fabric, and naive Christina that I am was like, oh, if anyone is immunocompromised or, you know, essential worker or need this to go to work, just message me. I'll mail you one. Just reimburse me for postage. Like it's my health is this is my all health matters moment. This is before we realized that masks were going to be really politicized and become right. a complete culture war. But, you know, it was like the most generous thing I've ever done where it's like, I don't care what you believe in, because if you get sick, I can get sick. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is still the case. BTW. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. But now it's just oh, it's so it's so ugly. It's so ugly. But anyway, so I uh, got inundated with requests for masks and was like, oh, shit, what have I signed myself on for? But it's also hard to say no to people that are mm -hmm. messaging you like, oh, please send this to my cousin who's a nurse. They have no mask and she's afraid she's going to die at work. It's like, you can't just be like, peace out. I need to self-care and watch Tiger King. No, you have to like, like, and now, anyway, so I started a group called Auntie Sewing Squad, which was just like just sort of a casual network on Facebook uh, of other friends who are sewing fast forward to now like that was supposed to be a two to three week stopgap until masks got to the market and they are on the market now however systemic racism has left behind all these communities uh before the pandemic and especially now so i'm talking about indigenous communities farm workers migrants at the border incarcerated communities uh, unhoused communities very poor communities of color and that is who our group is still sewing for. We are now a national network of hundreds of aunties 
across the United States, a couple in Canada. Um, we let them stay. You know, we grant them asylum. We let them stay because we might need them one day to marry us. Um, but uh, yeah, it's crazy. We've done like seven relief vehicles to the Navajo Nation. We've we've done a big coat drive to Standing Rock in the Black Hills to support oh, Lakota wow. folks who are dealing with sub-zero winter. Mm-hmm. Um, we sent support in terms of uh, helping get a, a vehicle that was donated to Standing Rock and um, which is filled with supplies. We had a kid's sewing camp, which grew out of a joke I made about child labor, and then it became real life. Mm-hmm. We have a book deal. <laughs> We've been covered like by Washington Post, CNN, um, NBC, Good Morning America. Like it, it just blew up so big. And I feel like I'm running a nonprofit, though I don't want this to become a nonprofit because I have so many issues with the, <laughs> with the system of running a nonprofit. But yeah, so that's. The new show I'm working on is called Christina Wong Sweatshop Overlord. And uh, because basically in those first 10 days of the pandemic, it was like I had, I don't know, I just like I went from creating a small Facebook group to now I'm suddenly like buying out dress shops of elastic in the street, all cash, right? Mm-hmm. Mailing elastic around the country. No, elastic became like, I don't know what gold would be the equivalent in prison. But oh, it, yeah. it just became like, Apple. like, like yeah. it was just like, <laughs> you could use it to yeah buy stuff or trade stuff like elastic oh was God. so hard. Yeah. And it, it was, was the certain width, that quarter inch elastic. Quarter inch. Yeah. yeah so where are you? I do. I went to fashion okay. school. Why don't I have a why fashion are you design sewing degree. for me? <laughs> well, I yeah. sewed for my family. And um, yeah. Step up. We're in a second wave, man. We need your I'm... we need your sew. Yes. No excuses. There are people who just gave birth to like babies and they were sewing and like are taking Christina, care of special you're needs. Shaming kids. me. Stop. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, no. That's what this podcast is about. Is is I actually had a re- interview with um KPCC reporter and and uh-huh. and she told me she she sews and I recruited her into the squad during the interview. Oh good. Like I was so ruthless. Yeah. And no, so I'll do it. Overlord. I want to buy. I don't have a sewing machine though. But when we moved oh. up to the Bay Area, I had I gave it away can, to a friend of mine. We can get you one. We so. can loan you one. We can find. Oh no, I mean I there. I can I'm sure I can find one. Um, it's less insane. Like the first few weeks were just like I, at, at one point we 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 had so many money donations but it's like we couldn't buy ourselves out of this problem it was labor that was the hardest thing to get and we were we were um offering 100 rebates to aunties buying sergers sergers are like 200 to 300 Mm dollars or if not more because it's just a faster sewing machine but it was like i was building a remote factory all over the country with employees i couldn't see who weren't employees because they're not paid and 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 like it was like i literally felt like the sweatshop overlord and like the strange irony of um because our first aunties were all asian they were all like uh and and i'm like what's this about right like that that we still had the skill from our mothers and grandparents and many of them who worked in the garment genetically industry. imprinted on us yeah but we're like we're like their college educated legacy right that we're supposed right. to move beyond this but gold mountain failed us and now here we are in uh you know in america cutting yeah. up our old bra straps locked up and, in our rooms and sewing. T-shirts, sewing masks for free right because <laughs> healthcare workers if they go down we all go down and we're witnessing that now um but now we don't yeah so we don't sew for healthcare workers so much anymore they're for the most part covered it's it, but it is really horrifying, some of these requests that I get. 
we just got this request um, from this rural village in Alaska. Mm, um, I'm from and Alaska. It, it's a mutual... Oh, you are? Mm-hmm. Uh, where in Alaska are you from? Anchorage. Oh, okay. Yeah, I played Anchorage. I played out north. But this is a more rural oh, I'm sure. area, yeah. apparently, um, of indigenous um, folks up there. And, and apparently... A bunch of masks were sent there, but are, you might know this, are just like stuck in a shipping facility because mm. I guess it just takes so long. Everything's right? quarantined? I don't know. Like, and, and, and so, so this mutual aid organizer down here wanted to get masks because they had a way to get it to a nonprofit and they found like a, a, a jet that would fly it over to right. this. Like it's, 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 it's like this is what I've been witnessing this whole pandemic is that the systems that are in place just don't work. And, and it takes very inefficient. Yeah. Aunties and mutual aid folks to literally figure out how to run around these systems to get stuff to people. So that, I mean, that was, that is just is bonkers. um, What we're trying to work around and it's just a bandaid, honestly, we're not, um, you know, and we can't measure how many lives we've saved or, or anything. We just, it, it, it's just basically picking up the slack of this inefficiency. So that's a lot of what the show is. It's like this living diary of this time. Mm-hmm. We are in, I keep this, I'm going to show you the calendar, even though folks at home can't see it. So, so I, I see those numbers in the calendar. Mm-hmm. That's each day of quarantine we've been in. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, so basically if I revisit Election day, that's day 229 of the shelter in place, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and those those markers are uh, uh, ways we mark off the show. It's like this long fucking diary of, <laughs> of, uh, no, it's, of, of this time. I think it's, yeah, I think it's so great because you're taking kind of your anxiety and your feeling of helplessness right? And you're turning it into something proactive and positive and constructive and practical. And, you know, I think that's terrific. You know, I I don't have a sewing machine. I was furiously hand sewing masks Uh. for all of us. And everyone was saying, it doesn't make a difference. And I said, how can it not make a difference? (laughs) Of course, it's going to make a difference. Like if you're you're covering your nose and mouth, like those are the worst people, man, the anti-maskers. And this is the whole irony. And I point this out. I didn't want to wear a mask in February because I'm like, I already have this mask called my face that I can't take off. So if I put a mask on top of this, it's going to just because I was giving crazy stares to people Asian people with masks on, I'd be like, "Well," and now it's like we're all wearing masks. <laughs> yeah. But I, I didn't. I was trying to protect myself by not being the victim of a hate crime, you know, mm-hmm. um, which was yeah, was kind of a real fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now I'm totally like, all we have right now is soap, water, and cloth. Like that's all we have until a vaccine comes. So um, just put your fucking mask on, you know, like just. <laughs> I don't know why this has to be such a big deal. I say deal. it all the time. Yeah. Just put your mask on. If we could just keep our masks on for two weeks, it would probably die out because yeah. it couldn't oh, spread totally. to anybody. It couldn't. Yeah. It couldn't spread to anybody. So, but people just don't want to do that. I know. And it's like, I, I don't get it. It's like, we can look at these countries in Asia that have curbed it like Vietnam, no deaths. Right. And it's like, just the, if you keep a mask and then and then but people here get all weird and they're like well we're not communists and it's like no one said we were but you can also you know <laughs> just put a mask on them like it has uh, one has nothing to do with the other yeah it's it's just coming from the top down 
And um, yeah, unfortunately, people believe him yeah. or they think it's some kind of um, infringement on their freedom, which is ridiculous. You know, it's like saying a safety belt is a seat belt is an infringement on your freedom. Yeah. You know, it's there for your health to save your life. But um, yeah, so the um, the Christina Wong sweatshop overlord. Yeah. So that'll be playing. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a show on Wednesday, December 3rd, uh, UC Merced, and um, and then I'll have a bunch of uh, shows in the spring. So that's sort of how I've been <laughs> dealing with So you're going to be time. at UC Merced? No, I'm in my house. I'm doing this all Oh, in your house, house, from your house still. Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. Okay. This school's all online still. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and all my engagements in the spring will also be online. Okay. Uh, it, I think it feels very clear to most theaters that until a vaccine starts going around, they can't open their doors. Right. So they've, yeah, uh, unless they have even, it outside even, or something. Yeah. And I, I've, I've gone to parking lot theater, uh, which is interesting. You like, mm -hmm. you get the sound through a specific radio station and um, you honk instead of clap. Mm -hmm. and, you know, it, it was something. Yeah. <laughs> I, I miss that. I had a dream last night that a red cat opened up and, uh, but no one was wearing a mask. And do you have dreams? Like I have dreams where no one social distances and, and, and there's no, um, there's no virus. Uh, like, like, Oh, that sounds I, I have very wonderful. few dreams that acknowledge that there's a, <laughs> there's a deadly virus airborne trans transferring from person to person. Yeah, but it, it was very apparent last night in my dream that there was a pandemic. Yeah. Anyway. Maybe it's finally hitting your subconscious since all the the sewing and everything is ratcheting down. Yeah, I'm finally being able to chill. Like the first month, two months of this was crazy. I was literally like running myself into exhaustion. It just It just felt like 700 alarms were constantly going off. And everyone was screaming at me to help and I was it was really hard to uh and I delegated too I really did but it's I mean this is we are basically a pretend FEMA you know and it's like so sad oh so here's a crazy story um there's a hospital in LA that I can't name because it's not good PR <laughs> um <laughs> It's not good PR for people to know that the place that you're going to to get better is actually like com like completely out of equipment. So they they got a delivery. So this is what is so nuts about the situation is like, I'm a performance artist. Why do I know this? And how am I part of this? Um, but basically, uh, they got a, a shipment of broken N95s from the federal government. I think mm. like when when FEMA was dropping off these masks, a lot of them were really old and broken. And right. So the elastic was really brittle and fall. And so none of the masks were staying on their faces. Oh my and, and the doctors, you know, these six figure doctors are like tying tourniquet rubbers around their face to keep the mask on. And this is how much of a shortage there was of elastic. So a volunteer from another mask group who only knew about this because like, Someone from the hospital contacted someone, someone who contacted her, who contacted me. She's like, do you have quarter inch flat braided elastic? And I said, yes, I just bought out a shop in the garment district. 
And um, she comes over to get these four rolls. And I said to her, do they need me to come over and fix them? For, because I'm just like, wait, now I fix medical equipment? Okay. But she said no, because they're, they're not letting anyone um, into the hospital. It's not like not a patient or staff. And right now all the broken masks and this elastic are in a closet uh, armed by a armed guard. Like, like, and I'm just like, oh my God, we're, we're a banana Republic now like this, but I'm just like, this elastic was on my floor and I'm like, this, I just, did I just fix a hospital? (laughs) So, you know, like this whole situation is bananas to me. Like we, it's just, this is what happens (laughs) when the people in charge are rich kids who never had to work a day in their life. (laughs) So they don't understand the whole process of, you know, getting a team together, collaborating, working together, sharing information. It's just so poorly managed. Artists artists and, you know, I'm doing a Giving Tuesday ask uh, where everybody, I don't know why they giving like we have one day to give like where every nonprofit is shaking everybody down for, for money, but whatever. I was like, all right, we're going to, we're not a nonprofit, but we have a nonprofit fiscal receiver who helps us take donations. And, and I, I was realizing like some of our, our quote, 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 selling points is we have no paid staff, no overhead, like literally a l- bunch of Thanksgiving photos that auntie shared were like the sewing machine on one half of the dining table and then Thanksgiving dinner on the other half. Mm, mm-hmm. Because <laughs> basically taking over that over. part of their house <laughs> and everyone has to eat on like the small table because they've turned the dining room table into the sewing station right so right um but yeah this is sort of like the i don't know is that is that like people who aren't getting paid a cent are like working we're working our fucking asses off and i'm like i don't know i just i'm just stunned at the waste stunned at the ineptness and the corruption and everything all of it it's just really obscene i think the whole the whole mess that we're in still you know Mm -hmm. we thought okay we'll make these masks and then they'll get the production going and everybody will have access to them and they will be free to people who can't buy them and it's still like you guys are still making them yeah. No. Yeah, and and then people are like, "Well, you could just buy them cheap," and I'm like, "We're not the anti-buying squad." And um, and and, and really, is it is it, is, it, is, it, is it just that fucking sad that we're just gonna have to just buy a bunch of masks from Mexico or or wherever uh, where people are getting COVID in those factories? Mm-hmm. Um, but also, you're making masks for way. those underserved communities, so yeah. they may not have the you know the funds to go out and get all these things. They don't to protect their community, so that's the point of your work. Yeah, exactly, exactly. This is a big crazy mess, and I can't believe how close I feel to all this. Um, but I think I think it's wonderful that you're using it to inspire yourself to make these new things to make a statement about what's going on you know and you're doing it in your way you know you're doing it with a, a dash of comedy and you're being kind of an instigator and you're going out there and you're really provoking people to think you know to look up from their computers right or their phones and just say hey this is happening you know and everybody has to pitch in like you said like i have to pitch into i have to carve out time 
time of my day. Yeah, so I mean, I've never felt so generous in my life, and I'm like, I and I am often told that I'm a selfish person, and um, but but those fucking people need to take it back because I've I get made up for it right now. <laughs> <laughs> I would not but, say that. <laughs> no one, no one has said that during the pandemic of me. But before yeah. this, I have very distinct. I can name a few people who straight up were like, you, you all you do self promote, you're super selfish. And, uh, but a lot of it is that I, I would say also the nature of, of making a living as an artist is you have to mm-hmm. remind people that you're alive. Like, right. I don't, I don't know who is able to survive as an artist and nobody know what the fuck they're doing. Um, if they're not already famous. So anyway, so, um, but I've never felt this giving and generous before. I've never, um, and I do think that a lot of how I turned to to take this approach to it versus panic and freak out is I remember the 2008 recession and I remember post 9-11 and feeling like the sky was falling and um, and giving into that panic and fear. And I was like, I can't do that. I have to pretend that I'm in control mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I have to recognize I have privilege in this situation and that... Um, and there's still privilege I can leverage. And I think also being an elected official, even in the tiny capacity that I am, um, like a lot of folks are like, oh, she's just running as a joke. And and maybe it sort of halfway was, but I think once I was elected, and yes, it was like 72 votes, including the vote I cast for myself, I, I really did feel like, wow, these folks, you know, t- they took a few minutes out of their day to choose me to represent them. And 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 I think that that was a shift in my thinking, um, that I do have some power, and I am, you know, what it made me think a lot about what what does a leader do, and um, and I think as an artist, I think I had been used to sort of complaining, uh, and like even in my work, or like this is wrong, this is bad, but I think as an actual elected official, I have to sort of think, okay, well, how am I the catalyst for change, and what can I do to do that. So, so I think um, with leading this group, it's sort of been informed a lot by my experience in theater, um, grant writing, marketing, storytelling is a lot of how we share the stories of our group, but also sort of thinking about how to get beyond um, feeling helpless and complaining and thinking about like, what are those direct connections we can make to get the things that are necessary to people right to them. And what would be a big takeaway? Like, what's a a big lesson you learned when you were um, working as a representative? I think that artists and politicians actually um, are quite similar. I mean, I, I as I, I wrote the show and I talk about sort of being a failed reality TV star, right? Top of the show. Like, there's immediate parallels to me and uh, the current occupant in the White House, right? That, that we really were both kind of these clowny, look at me, um, uh, egomaniacs, um, reality TV stars, we understand spectacle. But I think, you know, um, I, don't, I don't think he has figured out how to actually step up and be a leader in it. I think he's still blaming people. And I... Um, and I think there's, I think we recognize a lot of the theater, uh, especially with this president, this person, I call him, um, <laughs> I, I tend to not dignify him with his, 
his actual title. Uh, but that we see that a lot of politics is performance and a lot of like the signing of things is symbolic. Like even if the next president will like executive order it away, um, we see a lot of these ceremonies in a rose garden are symbolic. And and so I, uh, one of the big stories that I share in the show is is our vote to abolish ICE. Uh, now we're neighborhood council. We can't actually take down a federal agency but we are an immigrant neighborhood. We have a lot of undocumented immigrants in our neighborhood. This entire community would collapse without immigrant labor and especially undocumented immigrant labor. And so um, so putting together that vote was not an easy thing that I thought, I wasn't sure that everyone was gonna be on board. So I felt like I was booking like a little open mic. So I brought all my undocumented friends and I sort of prepped them and I'm like, okay, you're gonna give this, uh, you're going to give a community comment. And it was like the most emotional meeting we've ever had. And I was just like sobbing at the end because these stories are real, right? Mm -hmm. um, that people can't report a crime. They can't, um, uh, they're constantly living in fear. They, they're separated from family members. They're worried about going and taking their kids to school because maybe ICE will stop them, right? And it's like so emotional. And uh, and so even though we voted to abolish ICE and it didn't actually do anything, it was like this amazing symbolic moment that I think like put on the city clerk's website that this community feels this way. Um, and we see this a lot. I see it in Congress when they're like censuring Trump for things he said, you know, like whether or not he takes that or whatever, it's a symbolic slap on the wrist, right? So I, I think we have to think about these these things that politicians do being a specific sort of theater and 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 instead of clay or masks or <laughs> or music, they're working with legislation. Um, and and it's it feels like a very boring medium, but I think the art of it is is trying to find creative ways um, to, to shift legislation so it is dynamic so that the people get excited about voting yeah and it just it affects everybody's life you know we just can't get around it anymore because we're all stuck here because of just horrible horrible leadership yeah totally yeah but let, let's take it back a little bit where did you grow up i grew up in san francisco okay city. i was born and raised there my parents are also born and raised there my mom is um we have a huge hub of aunties in San Francisco. Uh, my mom is actually one of our aunties and she coordinates um, all her retired Chinese friends who are not on Facebook and, and mm -hmm. they, they sew and knit stuff, <laughs> which is really cool. Uh -huh. um, I didn't grow up very political. Um, and my, my, in fact, my first kind of introduction to politics was the environmentalist movement, which I really didn't understand from the standpoint of environmental justice and environmental racism. It was more like go green and recycle. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I had a very kind of whitewashed understanding of that movement. Um, and I didn't think about race and gender or was it like, I didn't think it was okay to confront those issues. I thought it was too, uh, I was more taught like these are, this, this is how you're read in the world. So work around it, not mm. shift the way that people see you. Um, uh, definitely wasn't um, raised to become a performance artist, but uh, I think not having access to a good therapist or any therapy when I was younger <laughs> sort of led me on this path of like, if I 
if I'm screaming on a stage and people are looking at me and enjoying it, that's great. That's, <laughs> that's fun. Mm -hmm. So, um, I didn't really kind of have a political awakening until I got to college and, and didn't really, um, understand what theater could be until I got to college and it was, I was part of an Asian American theater company and, uh, but also was introduced to performance art and sort of what I call quote unquote weird shit, you know, mm -hmm. like <laughs> people performing in the bathroom and hallways. Right. And that was in the department I was in of world arts and cultures was witnessing a lot of that kind of work. And I just was more drawn to that oddness of work mm -hmm. than like more like scripted art. And I just, now, is that what I'm, you were studying in college? I was an English major and world arts and cultures major. And I did a minor in Asian American studies. Um, and then you're going out and watching theater and thinking, and hmm. I watched a lot of theater and I watched a lot of senior concerts in the department of world arts and cultures, which is a lot of choreographers. And I really enjoyed sort of the visual language and, and, um, found myself enjoying weird abstract stuff more than scripted plays. Um, I still watch scripted plays, but I appreciate more the site specific work. Um, I appreciate work that's autobiographical, like to a point. There's a lot of autobiographical, mm -hmm. there's a whole genre of autobiographical work I can't stand. Um, <laughs> like the kind of, like the, the first time one person show cliche, mm -hmm. which some people may know what I'm talking about, but like stuff that like you couldn't recast any other person to do that. Like that's the kind of work I really appreciate. Um, uh, the, and, and, and I feel like a lot of the work I do, like I have a lot of high school students who are in speech who are like, can I have a copy of a script to perform at a competition? I'm like, sure, good luck. I mean, but, but my shows are just like so weird that, uh, and, and have a lot of very specific media and I think are successful because I'm the Christina Wong telling you the story that happened to me versus having some other actor, you know, <laughs> say that they're me telling the story. So, um, Anyway, yeah, I, I I got out of college and was like, I'm going to be a performance artist. I had no idea what the fuck I was doing. And I I worked <laughs> at an arts nonprofit. I taught theater at a for high school kids part time. I sold stuff on eBay and I took free workshops um, in performance making from people like Denise Oihara and Danielle Brazel and um, who's now the head of cultural affairs uh, in the city of L.A. But um, yeah, and I just like started to cobble together pieces of work. Mm -hmm. And um, I sort of briefly, I briefly was in graduate school, dropped out and, <laughs> and, and have just sort of like felt my way through this. And uh, now I just do this for a living and I'm still here. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I was reading through your bio and you have all these amazing shows under your belt and I wanted to ask you about Wong flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yeah. And that, that's just sounded really powerful to me. You know, it's yeah. when you explored the high rates of depression and suicide among Asian American women. And I had a show, one of my, um, I think it was my second show. I, I spoke with a, a psychologist, Dr. Grace Chen, and we just discussed mental health issues that affect Asian women. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that, that's one thing that we talked about. There, there are there are high rates of depression and suicide in the Asian American community. You can watch Wong Clover the Cuckoo's Nest on Vimeo. Um, there are George Bush jokes in it. That's how old that show is. But <laughs> um, but essentially, I 
I feel like I learned about how to make theater in such an inside out way. Like, <laughs> like I, I watched a lot, but didn't know this, that I loved like watching work. I was like, you definitely, like the word now is devised theater. Right. But I didn't know what that term was when I was watching that work. It's like work that definitely feels like it came out of a specific workshop process, not mm, just mm-hmm. memorizing lines and reciting them on stage. Right. And um, I loved watching devised work. And I, would have wanted to figure out how do you make that and um anyway now uh i would say that that show kind of came out of a process where i didn't just sit down on in front of a computer type out a script and do it but i was basically i was i kept telling people i'm working on this show called long Live the cuckoo's nest about depression and suicide and everyone was like oh is it going to include um stories about postpartum is it going to include cambodian refugees is it going to include oh can you interview me can you like and i just was like oh my god like just overwhelmed (laughs) trying to figure out how to make everyone happy like it Uh it felt like this weird parallel from high school like trying to make everyone happy but not only that um i were you surprised at how many how many people came forward depression were were coming yeah no how many people came forward who i was like like I've been depressed. Oh, I try to kill myself once. And I'm just like, where were you when I was in high school? Cause I thought it was just me. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so, so those were the two things that were happening. It was like, it was being overwhelmed with trying to please everybody with one show, but also like all these people coming out of the woodwork um, who I never imagined were depressed and just kind of came across as sort of perfect and happy and content. And mm-hmm. And that's, and so it that's was, everyone it was, it was, pushing it down, pushing it down. Yeah. Pushing oh yeah. Down and oh putting yeah. A smile and so that's, on. that's me in the show. So I'm a character named Christina Wong in the show, who uh, says at the top of the show, "Hey everyone, Christina Wong. I'm going to do this show for you. Uh, you're probably wondering, is this topic about me? No, it's all fiction. Say it with me, fiction, fiction. And so this metaphor of Christina Wong, who's doing a show that's all fiction, that's going to conveniently end depression and suicide among Asian American women um, it just falls apart because uh, she, she can't like do the show and have it not be about her. So like basically I'm unraveling during the show, like literally my costume is like unraveling and coming apart and, mm-hmm. um, and it becomes clear that I need to fix me, the character Christina Wong before we get further. So yeah, so that way, I mean, I mean, that show really messed with my head. Like in in <laughs> in ways, it was like so healing for me to finally create a vocabulary around it and have sort of control over mm-hmm. um, this thing that had dominated my life for so yeah. long by making this show. And you have to name name it, name it, right? You have to name. Uh, it. But but have an audience like, oh, this was the greatest, and buy my house and all sorts of stuff, you know. <laughs> so, um, but to tour that on and off for eight years mm. and not know how to move on from that show was really hard. And I began to wonder, cause I just thought, Oh, if I have a hit show, everything else will fall in place. I'll, I'll, I'll be on TV. I'll a uh, big manager will show up and none of that happened. Right. Like I sort of had those things in place, but it, nothing was automatic. And I, and even now, I think now I've just sort of accepted, you know, it, nothing becomes, some things become easier, but you still have to work. You still have mm-hmm. to hustle and and um and that's just what it is unfortunately um but i think then i just felt really heartbroken that i'd given so much in the show and i was like what i have to do this again with some other show like and 
I think I was becoming the character I was playing. I was becoming this character that was eager to please, that was in complete denial, that was on repeat. It's a very meta experience, this show, and I hope you get to mm-hmm. watch it in addition to the other show. You have, you have a lot of assignments for me. I today, have Andy. so much homework. <laughs> you have homework. You interviewed me, now you have homework. Um, but yeah, I mean, it just messed with my head because it's not healthy to perform a, the same show for eight years, right? Um, because in those eight years, a bunch of my friends got married and kids, and I'm like, oh my God, I'm still doing the same show. I'm like Peter Pan, I'm like on this island. And I began to like just really drive myself crazy. And I, I became scared too when I was dating new people to tell them what I did for a living. Like I didn't want them to know that I had depression and suicide show for whatever reason. Cause I thought, oh, they'll think I'm nuts. But now I'm just like, I'm, I now I'm just like, yeah, that was a character. That was a stage in my life. But I, I didn't even know how to talk about my own work. Right. Um, Do you feel like the show just helped you process a lot of that? And you just it did, it came not. out of yeah. it? Okay. It did at the beginning. And then, and then I didn't know how to move on to make the next show. I, I made two new shows that didn't tour as much. And I think, and, and then I decided to go to Uganda. Mm. And and just do, um, I realize now that my process is, uh, I think it's very much an artist in her 20s and 30s because it's kind of mining her past and her feelings. But I think I've, from the Cuckoo's Nest experience, like I don't, I want to learn something new in each show. Like I don't want to just like go, like, let me talk about this really painful time and, um, and then perform it over and over again on a stage. Like that's just not satisfying. And um and i think it's re-traumatizing for me personally um right you know there's definitely a point when i was doing cuckoo's nest where i was like i'm the greatest artist in the world and then you know year seven year eight i'm like okay fucking sick of this show (laughs) um (laughs) but you are in control of it you you ended it when you wanted to right and you moved on and you well, decided to... I didn't really end it when I wanted to. I still get requests to do it. I just now mm-hmm. do a speech. I do a speech that I've updated. And a lot of people were like, people are really wonderful about giving unsolicited advice that is actually creating more work for you. And people would be like, just uh, just update your show or just make a new show. And I'm like, I have. They'd be like, oh. I remember talking to a life coach and every like thing of advice she'd give me, it was like stuff I already did. Mm-hmm. You know, like, what am like, I paying for? <laughs> I was just like in this weird fucking situation <laughs> where I made a solo show. I was making a living. This was also tricky as I was making a living at it. But it, it sort of like felt like, is this what porn stars deal with when they're trying to figure out how to retire? But all they know how to do is exploit this very private part of themselves, right? And and how do you move on to another job? Like, what is that? Because bridge. And I didn't know how to bridge into the next right. thing. So it took a few years of planning, but I um, created a show called The Wall Street Journal, which was researched in Uganda, um, where I made a rap album with local rappers. And Now, now why Uganda? I don't know. Like, I, I think I was really going through this moment of, like, I realized I had spent so much of my 20s and 30s trying to pursue a career in the arts that I never did like I, I mean I mean I was really just like I just when I think about the 20 my 20s I just was like clawing on the side of a cliff trying to survive half the time or like just mm, trying to chase down a college gig yeah. or, you know and <laughs> and I never got to do that thing where I went to Japan to teach English or worked right. in the Peace Corps so this was and, your gap year 
Yeah, except I was 35 years old at the time. <laughs> and, 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 and I also was just like, everyone's getting married and having kids and I'm just here doing this show. And, and let me don't just compare. Do no, that's oh, that I know. destructive I know. voice terrible. in our heads. Yeah. Oh, it's terrible. It's like we have to oh stop that reflex. Like if you enjoy it, if you love doing it, then it's fine. If you feel like it's time to move on, then it is. So yeah, I went to Uganda and made a rap album, uh, became a hit rap album in Northern Uganda. <laughs> And uh, no, wait, also, where, where can people listen to this rap album? Where can um, they find if you that? Look at, it's called Mzungu Price. If you look at Mzungu Price, Christina Wong, Mzungu is the word they use for white people. So I was a Mzungu. Oh, wow. There. You became <laughs> so white in Uganda. About the show too. It's, it's not just okay. about like, oh, Christina like made a rap album, but it's also about me kind of confronting my proximity to white privilege as an Asian American. Mm hmm. In Uganda, and and also, what does it mean to help, quote unquote, help other people? And and I'm glad I had that experience before I started Auntie Sewing Squad because I feel like a lot of the politics of charity and stuff, and 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 uh, and the paternalistic kind of POV that often happens when you're trying to help another community isn't useful. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, it's not it's quote unquote, it's not useful. Like <laughs> it's not useful. It's just like it's bad or whatever. And um anyway so so doing that show was great because i suddenly was like oh like i didn't realize how complicated this would be for me to just do a show set in uganda like i i can't just do a show about microloans and how they work without confronting my position as the narrator in this and and uh talking about all the problematicness of me being the storyteller about other people who are already kind of invisible or already kind of blurry with other African countries, right? So I really, um, it was a rigorous experience, but it was so, it was so, it was such a learning lesson for my practice in terms of like how, how I want to proceed as an artist in the world and, and to sort of learn things I don't know. So I think the project after that was running for office. I tried writing two plays about sort of the state of the world and it was just like, those were sort of stepping stones to getting to like, oh, I should just run for office um, because that was hugely informative. And I, I want every project I do from now on to teach me something I didn't know before. Like, I don't want to mm. just, and it's not that I'm going to deny that I had a past or had trauma, but, but I think um, if I'm just sort of sifting through that and making an audience look at that versus maybe adding something forward looking, then, uh, then it could be just kind of destructive and make me depressed. So, um, so yeah, so that's sort of what I've learned uh, with this sweatshop overlord. I'm not quite sure what I'm doing because it is sort of like hashing out the last few days of the pandemic, but I do feel like I'm learning a lot. Of, I'm, I actually have avoided like group um, being like part of like a theater ensemble and stuff like that because of the politics of working with so many people for extended amounts of time. And yet now I find myself like leading sort of an ensemble of aunties sewing, which is like what I've never wanted to do. Like I very much like running around solo. Um, so that's been interesting to, to sort of have to um, uh, uh, run interference when aunties have like disagreements with each other or conflicts and um <laughs> You know, just like, it's just crazy. I'm like, all this shit I never really wanted to do. And I'm like, but I can see you <laughs> being it. really good at cracking the whip. 
So like think naturally oh, yeah. oh, you're yeah. a natural That's why they call me the leader. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am the most charismatic cult leader. I yeah. we we joke that like are we a cult? We're not a cult, right? There's no sex in this cult. Like we're like a sexless cult with nothing but elastic. No. Right? Like a I mean it's just is... really funny. When you're kind of divorcing yourself from reality. It feels like you that guys sometimes because we're like, we're facing reality head on. Yeah. <laughs> you guys are facing reality head on. So no, I would I would not say that. But um but I wanted to just talk to you about all your future endeavors. So let me know what's up so I can be prepared this time and not be out of it. <laughs> um I mean the biggest one is uh switch up overlord and then yeah, part of me has a moment where I'm like really kind of I'm so productive in this weird way in the pandemic in ways that there there are things that I like about this. I don't want to stay in this pandemic forever, but there there are some things like the quiet I kind of like, like versus like scrolling through Facebook and seeing that everyone was at a party that I wasn't at, and oh god, I missed that show, and oh god, god like yeah, no, everyone is not doing anything. I can kind of deal with this pace a little bit better. And yeah. and I think also, I think what has been so amazing about the aunties, it's not just like that we sew and so and so, but that we also take care of each other a lot in ways that we didn't have time to do before, that we have time to like send a care gift to someone who we still haven't met in person yet, right? Mm-hmm. We um we have time to kind of like disconnect and sew and do stitch and bitches on Zoom. And I think that that... Um, that sort of level of connection and generosity in this moment has been uh, really kind of life affirming and genuine. And um, so, so I, I want to figure out how we sustain that when we go back to our big frenzied lives. Um, But it's also like kind of cut a lot of the bullshit out. Like we just go right towards what we want. So I I've been going, Oh shit, what do I want to do when this is all over? Do I want to write a movie or something? Like, you know, like I I think Mm -hmm. about those big crazy goals I had, before all this that that always eluded me like i gotta write a book um oh we all but we are we have a book deal <laughs> but like yeah, wait, i think that's like, fantastic but i i don't know i guess there's something i kind of see as you are explaining it i kind of see a documentary yeah you know? so we're working and maybe like in installments we do have a documentary uh, valerie so is our documentary filmmaker and okay i'm, I'm slowly like try to con her into you know her last documentary was love boat about the exchange the the program the learning program in taiwan did you Mm -hmm. ever do that Mm -mm. i did it and i had a little french chinese boyfriend from that anyway um yeah i'm in the documentary that's another (laughs) thing to put on your watch list but anyway so i'm trying to get get valerie to shoot our full length doc and uh which is crazy because you can't you can't send the camera crew around in a pandemic i mean you could but it's a lot trickier yeah but um Spring and summer should be a lot better. We should have vaccines by then for us normal people. So it'll crossing fingers. Yeah. What's with these anti-vaxxers? I feel like I can say that in the Asian podcast because there aren't that many Asian people who are anti-vaxxers. And if you are an Asian anti-vaxxer listening to Asian fail, I'm going to pin you down and inject you with it. (laughs) I'm definitely not an anti-vaxxer. It's, yeah, it's, it's another whipped up thing it's kind of i think it started as this conspiracy on the left and then it sort of migrated to a conspiracy on the right as like an anti-government thing so it's just for people in general i don't know it's like they live in fear and they have to pin their fear on something 
you know, to it's make weird it... how anarchy has shifted. That, like what you just said made me realize like anarchy used to be a thing on the left. And now I feel like how did the right wingers become anarchists? And the mm-hmm. rest of us are like, listen to the government. Exactly. <laughs> how does that exactly. happen? Do your patriotic duty, <laughs> wear your mask. No. Uh, like, yeah. Everything flipped. Yeah. No, but I was going to say, like, I love um, your knitting metaphor and the sewing metaphor. And like you said, like there's a sewing circle, stitch and bitch sessions. So it's just um, this wonderful visual of, you know, literally bringing things together, knitting them together, whether it be community or ideas, right, or a political movement. Um, yeah. All those things that you're really involved in. I feel like, yeah, those two visuals really kind of encapsulate everything you're doing. Yeah, I, I, it's so funny because I was part of a knitting group in uh, elementary school, and 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 uh, I I dabbled in sewing. I'm not even that good at either, but it's become like every I ruin every hobby of mine by making it part of my life, like in this big way. <laughs> like I hate sewing now because of the sewing squad. Like I'm like I don't want to turn the machine on. I don't want to sew right. anymore. Too much. But <laughs> like these were things that gave me like comfort. Now I'm like great. Now I've incorporated in my work. Now I it's too much. Um, but yeah, no, there's something beautiful about being able to like physically put our bodies like into making this work and 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 doing more than signing petitions with our thumbs that mm-hmm. like help Standing Rock or like you know help Black Lives Matter that we're actually literally offering protection for these communities right um because we have nothing else to do i mean you know we're like otherwise just too totally helpless in our houses yeah and so these this is a way to serve it that's what i find touching is that you're making something with your hands and you're giving it to this you know this group of people that needs your help your protection so you're literally making something to protect another human being you know Mm -hmm. and it's it's almost like a motherly um instinct you know or just just the the humanity in all of us like we need to reach out and we need to help other people that need help who can't help themselves yeah yeah and i think that's also what has made us really just sort of successful and sort of like a lot of the ppe sewing groups are just called like you know los alamitos sewing group you know, but something about Auntie Sewing Squad has sort of a like a built-in family, like a sweetness to it, and people can see mm-hmm. us and right. You know, we can and, picture and them. It, yeah, it's been it's been like people are <laughs> able to give us money, you know, because they can see us versus like PPE for LA. Like that's okay. <laughs> right, right. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I'm I feel very lucky that my neighbor Audrey sort of planted this image of aunties in my head a couple days before I started the group anyway here we are we're aunties and we're sewing and yeah and we'll crawl out of this somehow you know absolutely yeah we have no choice we have but on the personal front I was reading your website and it seems like you're biking everywhere. Are you still biking everywhere? Oh my god, that's yeah. I have to take that page down. I haven't biked anywhere. I I don't have a car <laughs> in LA. Yeah, my I haven't been on my bicycle in years. I should probably just sell it or get a better one. Um, but yeah, I was really into bicycles like ten years right. ago. 
so into bicycles. Um, I need to get back into bikes. And it, it do, said that your your car died on the 405. Yeah, like, I had what a happened? pink car that ran on. So, so part of going green the long way, which is one of my shows, one of the two shows I made after mm-hmm. uh, Wong for the Cuckoo's Nest, I, I thought I would get off big oil, which I felt like was just the reason why we were at war with with Iraq um, uh, by running a car in vegetable oil. So there was like this hip hipster scam this scam place, not even business anymore, that was converting cars around a vegetable oil. So I bought this uh, 1985 Mercedes-Benz, pink, and um, it was like the biggest money pit. It needed repairs every fucking week. Couldn't get up hills. Mm. Like it was just mm. terrifying. And then it caught on fire on the freeway. So I haven't had a car in 12 years uh, in LA. Um, now there's like Uber and Lyft. Um, and I live in Koreatown, which makes it easier for me to get around. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say one of the kind of benefits of not having a car is that you you become really friendly with people, and you're like, "Hey, are you headed this way? Can I jump in your car?" You know. <laughs> and so, like, two of the people who have been really active with the Auntie Sewing Squad are people who I met who gave me rides in a previous situation, right? Oh, like, okay. I met them in rideshare situations, and now they're, you know, so so there's yes, it is a pain in the ass not to have a car, but um, I just have so much like anxiety around car ownership. Like I'll drive a car that's rented, but like if I own a vehicle and, and it's starting to like have issues, like no shortage of anxiety just like flies through my body. Yeah. It is a lot of stuff to deal with. And that 405 breaking down on the 405 has got to be every person in LA's nightmare. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's like no, I have nightmares so about being broken it down on the 405. So... Yeah scary it was so scary um that's all i can say yeah so you were also hired to do an immersive play matt hatter's gin and tea party that sounds fantastic yeah it's a a, great it's a company called um uh fever and they do events and i think they've adapted to the pandemic by doing parking they have a strangers things show i didn't i didn't get to catch it but they did that uh, where you were in your car and like actors come up to the car and <laughs> and stuff like that. So, oh, wow. um, yeah, it was cool to take to like to to revisit Alice in Wonderland and and um, and Lewis Carroll's work and think about how the Mad Hatter's Tea Party could be an experience that's like I describe it as like immersive, but like a little bit Beverly Center, like mm. like it, that it can reach <laughs> like the you know the people who just want to they don't want to see art they just want to have a good time and take selfies Mm -hmm. and so that was just the for hire experience and um and very you know it's it's weird like as most people most artists i know they either work a lot commercially and then on the side they do their art but i actually suck at getting work (laughs) commercially (laughs) and like get most of my money as an artist and then um sometimes pursue things commercially, right? Like it's mm-hmm. a different flipped formula. And I guess I'm lucky in that sense, but it's also just, it makes no sense to a lot of folks. So when I do get hired to do things, I'm like, oh shit, oh, sh- I'm accountable to something. I can't just be like my big crazy self. So, so yeah, that was an example of a moment where I was like, oh, I have to like read this and like talk to the client and like. Right. <laughs> but that sounds like such an interesting um, sort of evolution of the theatrical experience. Like yeah, really having the audience think, be part of it. 
Yeah, I think it's interesting that like site specific was the term that more like theater that relies on grants and stuff would use, but now immersive is more a kind of commercial entertainment experience. And I think it's maybe the end result of people getting sick of being online all the time is they want to, it's like they want sort of the, it's a, it's a cross between theme park and theater, right? Where you are not just watching, but you're sort of an actor or character in it as well. And I think a lot of that comes out of selfie culture and um, wanting like fun things to take pictures of for your timeline. And, but also, you know, looking to do things that aren't just like sitting around at the bar and getting drunk. So, um, so that to me was exciting for me as a theater artist that, that, that there's this, that there's this whole evolution of immersive um, entertainment companies and stuff coming out because this could be, a, you know, now we're all on hold because no one can go out in, in, in public, but it, it provides more jobs for actors and, and um, artists and um, hopefully is a way to get those folks who, you know, wanted to go beyond the, the Six Flags experience to the Strangers Things parking lot show. Maybe they'll step into the 99 seat theater, you know, and watch and watch something like totally out of their comfort zone. So I feel like that's my bar. It's quite low. <laughs> Anything that gets people slowly with, you know, into the arts is great. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, because it's it's not enough just to watch the play now. They They want to be part of it. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And I think that also comes from reality television, right? Is that we're, mm -hmm. we're used to, um, I have a lecture that I, uh, or talk lecture, my agents say is too, um, polarizing. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I just put together a talk called reality TV, political theater and social change, which can, which takes us from Jerry Springer, Tila Tequila, Flavor of Love, the apprentice to the political situation we're in now and that we've all become characters in a reality tv show whether or not we watch that genre in that we can can't like everyone has the power to cancel or be canceled that we can get on twitter and just yell at people and feel like we're characters in the play and so i feel like yeah this immersive theater is sort of an extension of that is that we want to feel like active agents in the things that we maybe it comes from Fortnite and things like that too but um but this, this, yeah, this feeling that we are actively part of the story. So now how do we get people to do that and be part of democracy? That is, <laughs> that's the next step of it, right? Is to not you know, just, I think people are doing yeah. it. Yeah, I do. I do yeah. too. I totally I think people are too. doing it. Yeah, I totally believe so too. Yeah, the fact that they flipped Georgia was like, that was huge. I mean, I was kind of thinking that they could do it. But yeah, it was amazing that they they actually did it this time. They 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 always had the power to do it. They just didn't register the voters, right? Mm -hmm. Like the voters and were just get suppressed. them out to vote. Yeah, that was amazing. Yeah, and and this is the thing: is it it's ongoing? It's ongoing. We have to keep. It can't be every once every four years that we go. Oh shit! We have to like <laughs> constantly keep mm -hmm. this up. Yeah, yeah. Well, Christina Wong. Thank you so much for Yeah, I gotta let you go so you can watch half us. the shows that I Yes, I need to go and watch those <laughs> tonight. I promise and I'll get back to you. And um yeah, I'll put all your links in the show notes. So Great. take care. Good luck. Yeah. Take care.
And there you have it. That was Christina Wong, Constant Creator. Um, I feel like I need to write more after talking to her. And check out the show notes so you can keep track of all her goings-ons and upcoming performances. I did check out her show, Christina Wong for Public Office. It was great. It was just like she said. Um, It was just very provocative and touching at times. And it was a limited run, so they don't have it in the cloud somewhere. So hopefully they will rerun it, but um, just keep track of anything happening with her on her website. And if you have time, please subscribe or write a review for the pod. The reviews help other people find the pod. Much appreciations. I'm going to start researching a multi-episode pod on basketball and the Asian American community because I'm just going to take this time while everyone is, you know, relaxing, taking some time off of work. I'm going to start researching this project because I feel like it's really interesting. Maybe not a lot of the general public really knows about it. And I thought you guys would be interested in it too. But um, I think I will do a couple more maybe before um, the new year. But they will be different in, uh, what should I say, in scope. It might just be a movie or TV review here or there. Um, But that's it. But thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.